Well, open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 John, book of 1 John. The passage that we're going to be in here today really is the passage that I would guess maybe a year to a year and a half ago, uh, as I was reading through it just in my own personal devotions, uh, it was the passage that really um, caused my focus to be turned so heavily to the idea of the love of God as being such a key part of the Christian walk. Um, And as I reflected on this passage, it really was so profound and so powerful that I said, I've got to study more about this. And it was kind of by tracking that down that I began to see the love of God appearing in the Minor Prophets and the rest is history. And over the past six months or so, we've been tracking the love of God through the Minor Prophets. But I wanted to come back to this particular chapter and spend some time here over a number of weeks just really working our way through this chapter to set some foundations now in light of all the things that we've learned from the Minor Prophets that we now know to be true about the love of God, what do we do with those truths and how do they impact our life? Uh, Because really, as we've already discovered together, it is the love of God that is the key and critical component in any and all spiritual growth within our lives. So if our task is to set some foundations for growth, and that really is what this series, this mini-series through 1 John 3 will be all about, foundations for growth, then we would do well to go back and take a look at what the Apostle John says are to be the ramifications of the love of God for our daily lives as we seek to conduct our Christian walk. So that's, that's kind of where we're going. It's important to set foundations for, for everything, right? I mean, particularly when it comes to building a home, for instance. The foundation is really a very important part of that process. If you don't have a foundation, uh, you're not going to have much of a structure. Uh, that was... Um, Driven home to me very clearly, when I was in 7th or 8th grade, my dad actually went about trying to construct our home. Um, And he did a great job. I shouldn't say trying. He did do it. But the very first thing that he did, and I remember, um, he actually let me out of school for the day because we were setting the foundation and he wanted me to be able to be there to see it because it was kind of metaphorical in our family that you set the foundation and then build everything up, up, up on top of it. I don't remember what I missed in school that day, but I do remember the laying of the foundation. So I guess uh, he was okay to let me out, out of school that day. Um, the, the, the picture was more powerful than anything I would have learned in school. But on that day, I remember very clearly, the reason I remember it is because of what he did on that day. He, he took an old Bible, put it inside a Ziploc bag, sealed it shut, and then put it between the forms in the foundation that was about to be poured right over top of it. And he placed it in such a way where the front door would be directly over that spot in the foundation where he had buried a copy of God's Word. Now, I'm not saying that you should all go out and do that when you build a new home, because that's probably not up to code, right? (laughs) To be sticking random things into the foundation of your house. Um, But for him, he wanted to send a very loud and clear message to our family, and then he took a picture of it, framed it, and put it in our front hall to anybody else who would walk in our front door uh, that this was a home that was built, literally, on top of the Word of God. (laughs) And when the communists take over, I know where I'm bringing my jackhammer. So, um, but it, it, that, that really stuck with me. 
right? The, the importance of, of not only the foundation to the home, but the metaphorical and spiritual foundation for what our family was supposed to be. Uh, and he, he really drove home to me as we were talking about that, the importance of having a strong and solid foundation for everything, whether it's from a home to a family to your spiritual walk. And that is exactly what we're trying to do here in turning our attention to 1 John chapter 3. You see, this passage is the foundation cornerstone for any and all spiritual growth in your life. And we're going to see that it ties in very, very well with everything we've been studying in the Minor Prophets for the better part of six months. Because in the Minor Prophets, we've seen the multifaceted evidences of God's love on display for us. But then here when we get to the book of 1 John, he's going to say, now here is exactly what that means and what you are now to do with it. So let me just read maybe the first three verses, and it's my intention to break up these three verses into three separate weeks and deal with them all individually because they each can contribute something very important to our foundation for spiritual growth, okay? So in verse 1, he says, here is what you must know in order to grow spiritually. He says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. And in verse 2, he kind of charts the course for how you grow spiritually. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And if he showed us in verse 1 what we're to know, and in verse 2 how we're to grow, in verse 3 he tells us what we must show. He says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he himself is pure. This is really the foundational starting point, and we're just going to take each of those concepts, what you know, how you grow, and what you must show, and, each, and look at each one of those things over the course of three weeks or so here. So today we're going to really zero in on chapter 3, verse 1, as to what we must know in order to grow spiritually. And this, this brings us right back to the point that we, we, we talked about when we started the series through the Minor Prophets. It's all about the importance of doctrine to life. You see, the order of these verses are important. They're not like a deck of cards. You cannot shuffle them and just read them in any order you want to and hope that the result is going to be the same. They're placed where they're placed in a very, very intentional order. And the reason for that is that all spiritual growth begins with what you know rather than what you show. If you start with what you should show and then try to backfill it with what you need to know, you're going to be serving from a heart that is really hypocritical and uninformed. So you can't do it that way. You have to start by knowing the truth. And as you grow in your knowledge of the truth, then you will begin to grow in the what you are then to also expected by God to show. I hope that makes sense. But you, I mean, to, to simplify it down and condense that, that thought, you can't change your behavior until you first change your heart. It's changing the heart that is growth. And you can't see a change in your heart until there's a first a change in your head. And it really is the knowledge of God that translates into a heart for God. And it's a heart for God that then motivates living as unto God. So 
What you know then about God, what you know about doctrine, what you know to be true, is what will then translate into growth and into action in your life. And that's why we have to start with what we must know. And it's exactly why John gives us the command that he gives us here in verse 1 of chapter 3. We'll start our time together by looking at the first word. He says there in chapter 3, verse 1, see. See. Right? Now, that's a command. It doesn't just mean to look at something. It means to fully grasp something, to comprehend the nature of it, and then to live in light of it. It's interesting, the Greek people had one word that meant to hear something, but they had five different words that meant to see something. And the reason for that is because when we say, I see you, that can be very nuanced, right? We, we in English have multiple different words to see things as well, don't we? Look at it, behold it, perceive it, comprehend it, to see it. Those would all be synonyms that essentially say the same thing, but they're all slightly different and varied, right? And the word that he uses here is very similar, but it's slightly shaded. It's not the word that means to see something physically or even to experience something. Instead, it means to fully comprehend it by means of paying attention. That's what he's saying here. You are to perceive this. You are to grasp this. You are to fully comprehend it. That's what he's saying. We could illustrate that by going back to the Apostle Paul, right? Think about the conversion of the Apostle Paul where I believe that the Apostle Paul, at that point his name would have been Saul, probably would have seen various portions of Jesus' ministry. Now that is pure conjecture. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not quoting you a chapter and a verse for that, but the reason I say that is that his extremely high ranking in the Sanhedrin as a Pharisee directly after the ministry of Jesus tells us that this guy had to at some level have been around to be exposed to the ministry of Jesus. And so it's very, very likely that he had at some point early in his life actually seen Jesus, been exposed to him, if not actually having been present when he was tried and then crucified and was part of the conspiracy to cover up his resurrection. So it's likely that Paul had seen Jesus. But what happens in Acts chapter 9? where Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, and there's this blinding light as Jesus manifests himself to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, even though he had most likely seen Jesus, had never fully comprehended the impact and the gravity of who Jesus was. And it was during the time of Paul's physical blindness that he truly begins to spiritually see, right? That's the force of this word here. It's a sight that a blind man could take advantage of, where Paul begins, even as he's blind, to comprehend and perceive the truth. And that's the force of this word. He's saying, comprehend this, grasp this, perceive this, understand it and cling to it in a way that you have never been able to see it before. He's saying, you have to now pay attention. The reason he wants us to firmly grasp this is because it is the foundation not just for our spiritual life itself, 
but also for our victorious walk within that spiritual life. And, and this word see, the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this even in the introduction this morning is because it's the governing verb in this verse and it, it has a twofold force. First, it's a command. He's saying this is not an option for those of you who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't take this command and say, eh, today I feel like it, tomorrow I don't. This is a command where he's saying, no, you must continually, constantly, always do this. It's not optional. And second, he uses it as an exclamation where he's saying, you need to see this because it's fascinating and it's amazing. And with that one word, he then sets up everything that is to follow. And here's going to be his point in verse 1. You can write this down. The foundation of your spiritual walk is your knowledge of God's love. That is the foundation of your spiritual walk. If you know his love, you have spiritual life. If you do not know his love, you do not have spiritual life. If you're walking according to his love, you are walking victoriously. If you're not walking according to his love and have forgotten about it, you are not walking victoriously. It's really a very simple proposition that's given to us here in this text. And in verse 1, he is going to show us exactly what you must know and why you must know it, because this truth is the foundation to everything. So first, now that we've looked at the command that sets up the whole thing, let's go back and find out exactly what we must know about the love of God. Again, because that's going to drive all the growth that is to follow later on in this passage. What you must know about the love of God, that's point one. The first thing he says here in the verse is very clear. See what? How great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Let's just take that one little clause, that one phrase. What is the main object of that phrase? Very simply, it is the word love. Everything else in that phrase grammatically points back to the word love. See how great a love, so look at the greatness of the love, that the Father, the one who gave the love, has bestowed, here's what he did with that love, on us, the recipients of that love. So at every point in this phrase, every word is pointing back to this central idea of the love of God and therefore its ramifications upon us. And, and we could really thread the needle, and today we're going to be going to a lot of different passages to look at this, but let me just remind you of some of the things that we've already studied, because I think that's very helpful introduction into this idea, right? Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Remember that passage? Way, way back at the very beginning. This was probably back in September or October we talked about this, where Moses says to God, show yourself to me. I want to know who you are. And what does God say? He says that he covered up Moses' face and he unveiled just a little corner of his glory. And the result of him, his revelation to Moses was essentially his statement to say that I am a God of great compassion and loving kindness who will dwell in faithfulness with my people forever. When God is called upon to identify himself, how does he do it? By saying that I am a God of love who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. So from the very beginning, God identifies himself as a God of love. You fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8. 
And you find that that is exactly the reason why God makes the promises that he makes to his people. He says, it was not on account of your greatness that I'm now coming to you and going to choose you as my own people. Rather, it is because I am choosing to bestow my love upon you. And throughout their whole history, we won't go back through all of it now, but throughout their whole history, it was his love for his people that not only drove him to make his commitments to them, but drove him to sustain them even in the face of their repetitive unfaithfulness back to him. And we saw that, did we not? We saw that his love is eternal, his love is compassionate, his love is just and gracious and unique and powerful and holy and present and saving. We saw all those things shown to us through various of the minor prophets. And then you skip over the great divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you find out, as we get into these texts, that absolutely nothing has changed. You go to a verse like John 3.16. You all know it like the back of your hand. But what does it say, right? John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is still the love of God that is motivating him to do what he does on our behalf. That is everything to our spiritual life. It's the reason why we have a spiritual life. It's the reason why we grow in spiritual life because this is who God is. And that's the statement that John calls us to here in chapter 3, verse 1, to pay attention to. Look, see, perceive how great this love is that the Father has given to us. So, having seen that the gift and identified it as, as love, let's look at a couple different facets of that. This is, again, what we are to know here. We are to know all about the degree of the gift. He says there in verse 1, see how great, right? That's a, a word of degree. It's the Greek word, and I'm going to say it because it's fun to say, actually, potapane. That's the word that's used here. I mean, you can say it with, with me if you want to, potapane, right? It's fun to say. Come on, give me a break. It's used seven times in the New Testament, and every single time it's used, it always is used to express some kind of astonishment. Pot of pain! That's how I think they'd say it if it were me. But by itself, it's a question. What kind is this? That's how it's used. What kind is this? And when you combine it with the noun here, love, it describes a superlative, not just quality, though it does describe quality, it also describes an abundant quantity. It's both. It's quality and quantity, and it's like mind-blowing. There is no English word that really works well here to translate this idea. We don't have one word like it. It's the same word that's used back in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, where Jesus and all his disciples come tramping into Jerusalem and they're looking at the Temple Mount, right? And they see the Temple Mount and, and Jesus' disciples, I love these guys, I mean, they're like sightseeing tourists here. They say, look, teacher, how massive these stones are. Where did they get these things? That word for massive is the word pot of pain. So big, some of those stones are, and this is just a sidebar, some of those stones are so big that we still don't know how they were moved into place. We don't have technology today that could facilitate the movement of some of those things. Huge, massive stones. 
And that's exactly the same word that is used here to describe the profound greatness of the love of the Father on behalf of us. You say, well, why is this little word study important? Because when you actually stop and think about it, when you obey the command to stop and see or perceive, when you, when you slow life down enough to reflect upon the love of God, what John is saying here is that that love ought to blow you away. What kind of love is this? That's the word. What weight class does this love fall into? If you were going to pigeonhole the love of God, which spot do you put it in? You put it in the top spot. You put it in the highest spot, the biggest spot, the most massive spot. You put it in a weight class that is all its own because it is that profoundly huge, massively great. He says, see what? See the degree of this gift. See how massive God's love is. He's saying there is nothing like it. There is nothing to which it can be compared. It is totally unique. And as the prophet Micah said to us already, who is a God like you? There's nobody. Let's go on. And let's see the agent of this gift. What else are we to know about this love? The agent of the gift here is none other than the Father. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. And grammatically, it really is set up here as possession. It's a love that is owned by the Father. It's not just the love of the Father. It is the Father's love. He owns it, right? It's, it's like saying that this is not just the house of rich. It's rich's house. I, I own it. I, I own the title deed to this property. That's the love that he has. It starts with him, it comes from him, and it is owned by him. And it's a love that always seeks the betterment of those towards whom it is shown. It is selfless. It is not concerned about its own rights. We could go over to, and we will go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians, and you may want to just keep a bookmark in the book of Ephesians. If, you, if your Bible has a bookmark, because we are going to need to come back here on a couple of occasions throughout our time in this passage this morning. But there's a great, profound description of the Father's love here given to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. The text says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love, again, there's the word, heavy love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's how we know the love of God because He has demonstrated it to us even when we were dead in our sins and transgressions. Why would He do such a thing? Well, as we discovered in our time in the Minor Prophets, it's simply because of who He is. By nature, reflexively, He is love. 1 John 4.1, if you were to skip one chapter down from where our passage is today, 1 John 4.1 says that God is is love. It's very clear. It's, it's a simple equation. God is blank. Love. Fill in the gap. And we know that because of passages like Ephesians 2 and Romans 5, but God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And what does that love look like? And this is really amazing. It's a love here, when you look at the agency of this love, a love that is owned by the Father. It's a love that starts within himself and is expressed amongst himself. You see, among the members of the very Godhead, there is this infinite loop of love between them. As the Father and the Spirit love the Son, and the Son and the Father love the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Son love the Father where they're all actively loving one another within the triune God. There's a a perfect statement of that given to us over in John chapter 17, verses 24 through 26. If you want to begin to understand the infinity of this love expressed by the Father, look no further than the relationship between the Father and the Son. Here's what it says. Jesus, speaking here, says, Father, I desire that my followers also whom you have given me may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Here it is. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. And O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Whoa. You see this infinite love between the Father and the Son, and what is Jesus saying there in his great high priestly prayer of John 17? He's saying, Father, allow me to catch up into that love relationship between us, all of these who would choose to believe and repent of their sin. All that you would give to me, may I bring them into the confines of this relationship of your great love that you have shown me. Now may you show it not only to me, but also to them. It's amazing. It's a love that is owned by the Father. It is infinite between he and his Son, and now we are able to experience it as well. You see that perfectly imaged even in the narrative of the transfiguration, right? Where Jesus takes his three closest disciples up onto the mountaintop. And the father pulls the veil back on the son to show these mere mortals who his son really was. And what does God say to be true about his his son? He says, this is my most beloved son. And in him I am well pleased. Listen now to him. And Peter's mind is blown. He doesn't know what to think about that. And he comes up with some lame-brained excuse for a response, and God says, no, stop. This is my son. He's the one you must now listen to. It just illustrates the kind of greatness of the love that exists between the Father and the Son and is now offered to us as well. This is what John is saying. Look at that. See how great a love the Father owns, and then what does He do? What's the nature of this gift? We've we've seen the degree of it, it's great, the agent of it, it belongs to the Father, and, and now we see the nature of it. What does He do with that love? He bestows it on us. He takes the love that resides within Himself, and He bestows it upon us. It's a word that means to grant something or give someone an unearned kind of a gift. And that's exactly what Ephesians 2.8 says. You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? A gift of God, a grant from God to you, even though you were not deserving of it. 
It has now been granted to you. You did not earn it. You cannot earn it. Not by works so that any man may boast, Ephesians 2 says. Rather, it is the gift of God. He has given this love to you. You know, this is really such a fitting metaphor that John calls God the Father, the Father here in this text, because it, 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 it really does connect so well with every single person who has ever had a child, right? Because this is the very nature of parenthood. My kids did nothing to earn my love, right? They showed up into the world, and the moment that I saw them, I immediately loved them. No parent sees their kid the first time and says, nope. <laughs> At least they shouldn't. <laughs> if you did, let's talk after. But you see, truest love, by its nature, it's a gift. And it isn't connected to the actions of the recipient because true, pure love, not the perverted love of the world, but the true godly love, it is a choice from one to another to say, I will bestow upon you my affections regardless of what you do. And trust me, there are times where I look at my kids and I say, regardless of what you've just done, I must now love you. And the tense of the verb that he uses here, even in chapter 1, the love the Father has bestowed on us, it's, it's a verb tense that really reflects an action that happened in the past, but has results that carry through today and into the future. It's an act of giving that is done. But the results of that act, the results of that gift, have impacted you. It happened 2,000 years ago, but... The results of that gift will continue to impact you 20,000 years from now. Imagine yourself someday in heaven, right? Let's just fast forward the clock and call it, I don't know, 50,000 years down the road. And if you were there and if somebody, we'll start with an M, Moses or Micah or Malachi were to come up to you and say, what is it about heaven that makes you most grateful? What do you think your answer would be? Just picture yourself in that kind of a context answering that kind of a question. What do you think your answer will be? It will not be, I'm telling you, it will not be the streets of gold. It will not be the tree of knowledge. And it will not be the reuniting with your loved ones. At that point, in that time, it will be your perfect knowledge of God's love that was given to you when you did not deserve it. It will be your knowledge of that love that serves as your ticket through the gate. It will be the love that provided you the means of transportation through the gate. It will be the knowledge of that love that guarantees your place inside that gate. You see, it is the love of God that has now brought you unto salvation. And that is what your answer will be. It is the ground for our spiritual life now, and it will be that which we are most thankful for when that eternal life is realized. Galatians 1.4 says that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself, and that word gave is the very same word here for bestowed. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and Father, the one who loved us. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. That word for delivered is the same word here as the word for bestowed. Delivered over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give, there it is again, us all things? 
You see, here is the amazing part, and this is why I'm making such a big deal out of the first part of this verse. The love of God isn't just given to you. It actually becomes a part of you. It is permanent. It is indwelling. It is life-changing. And once you've experienced it, everything about you is and must be different. And that's what comes next in the passage. That's exactly what he says. See how great a love the Father has bestowed, put within you. Why? So that you would be called the child of God, and such you are. And for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So we've locked down the degree of this love. It's massive. We've seen the agent of the love. It's the Father who gives it. We've seen the nature of it. It's given to us undeservedly. And so now we need to explore why that matters. We've seen what we must know. And now let's turn the corner a little bit and talk about why we must know it. Why must you know about the love of God? Well, the first thing that John tells us here under this second point is that it shapes your relationship to him. The reason why you must acknowledge his great love that he's bestowed on you is because you are now called the child of God and such you are. You see, your knowledge of this love, it it shapes everything about the way you relate to him, the way you interact with him, the way you live before him. The delivery of this love to you, it it has changed the very nature of God's relationship to you and your relationship to him. And we can see that even there in that word, we are now, we are now called children of God. There's a definitive change. Something is true about us now after having received the love of God that wasn't true before. And what is that thing that is now true of us that wasn't true before? Well, John tells us. I love how logical he is. He just marches right through this. What's now true about you that wasn't true before is that you're now called his child. That's what's true. And what he's saying there, that the terminology he's using is, is really the idea of giving someone a name, right? And that really is the most precious part of becoming a brand new parent. Well, not the most precious part, but it's, it's one of the most precious aspects of becoming a new parent is the opportunity to give this one who is now entering your family his or her very own name, right? It's one of the greatest moments in becoming a new parent where you select this name and you know that it's better, it, it had better be good because more than likely this kid's going to have to live with this name for the better part of a century. So make it good. Well, that's what God does. When we enter into his family, when we begin to experience his love and we first come to life and are known by him and fully know him, what's the very first thing he does? He calls us by our names and our name is now that of a child of God. He gives us his name so that we might become Christians, little Christs, where now we not only bear the image of his son as we were created to do, but we also bear his name as well. We are part of his family. We bear his name. We bear his image. And there are certain expectations that come with that. I mean, all of us understand the benefits of belonging to a family, right? You all have certain benefits of belonging to the family to which you belong. My surname is Gregory. There are certain benefits and sometimes downsides to being a Gregory. 
right? I remember where there are certain things that, that we all have the right to expect by being part of a family, where we tell our children that you have the right now because you have my last name to eat my food, to use my stuff, to fill my time, to expect my instruction. You have the right to occupy my thoughts and receive my care and experience my protection. And, and in short, you have the full right to know my love. You can accept the inheritance of all of my earthly possessions when I'm no longer here. And I've, I've told my girls before, you know, girls, we have something special because there's no one else in the world out of billions of little girls who have the right to call me dad. You're the only ones in the whole world who can do that because you have my name. And that's what's happening here in this text. He says, here's why this love is important to you. Because you now bear his name. He has chosen you, brought you into this family so that you can know the full benefits of being part of it. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Some of those benefits are given to us. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, to be revealed in the last time. You look at that list and you say, Whoa! That's what it means to be a child of God. You go back over to the place where we left a bookmark earlier. We dropped a breadcrumb there in Ephesians chapter 2. Go back there and stay here for a little while because there's a number of things we need to see here. Ephesians chapter 2, 1, chapter 1, I'm sorry. And I, I don't have time to read all these verses, but at some point you need to read verses 3 through 14. Because he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the foundations of the world so that we would be holy and blameless. He predestined us to be adopted as his son. There it is. Through Jesus Christ to himself, to the praise of his glory. And in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness according to the riches of his grace that he has lavished on us. He has made known to us now the mysteries of his will with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times and all also, here it is, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. What is the ramification of you knowing about the love of God? It's that you begin to understand the impact of exactly why that's important because it shapes everything about your relationship now to your Father. It's the foundation. You see, go over to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. And, he, and Paul addresses it directly here. He says, For this reason, 
I bow my knees before, he calls him here, the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And what is the benefit of having that name? Verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, number two, with power, through his spirit in the inner man, number three, so that Christ, number four, may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, number five, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able, number six, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know what? The love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up, number seven, to all the fullness of God. That's what spiritual life and growth is all about. It's about the connection of your awareness of who you now are to the love of God and the impact of that knowledge on your life. This is spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he says, and now, well, but verse 1, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But in light of that, and then he goes through this long list of sins. He's saying all those things should not even be named among you because you're someone who is defined by your relationship of love to your father. So don't even name immorality or impurity or greed or filthiness. And he goes on through this long list. This is spiritual life. Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Everywhere you look, it's there. You see, when you understand your relationship to the Father, it motivates you to live according to the standards set by him. When you comprehend the massive greatness of his love for you, that he has selected you for membership in this family, it changes the way you view him. And then it changes the way you view your responsibilities to him. And that's the reason why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as a young man, I would look at those statements and say, What are you talking about? Because don't you see how many commands God gives? How is that a light burden? The way that Christ's burden can be light is because you understand God's love for you. And then living according to his expectations transforms obedience to him from a duty to a delight. And the result is that you are now able to do a number of things. You can love your wife as Christ loved the church. Why? Because you've been loved and changed. You can love your children despite their awfulness. Why? Because you've been loved and changed. You can pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because you've been loved and changed. You now do not covet another man's wife. Why? Because he's loved you. You do not bear false witness because you've been loved. You do not selfishly prefer your own interests before another. Why? Because he has loved you. And you are now defined not by those things, but by who you are in light of who he is. The reason you must know about the love of God is because understanding his love changes your relationship to him. And when your relationship to him changes, so does everything else. And I love this next statement in John 3, 1. He says, and it's so emphatic, super great emphasis. He says, why did he give us this love? 
so that you could know what it means to be his child. And here's the emphasis. And such you are. It's really good. Just in case you were wondering, you are. So live like it, he says. That's only one half of why it's important to know the love of God. It's because it defines your relationship to the Father. But very quickly, we also have to look at how it shapes your relationship to the world as well. He goes on and he says, and it's for this reason that you're now defined by the name of God, called by his name, and defined by your relationship to him, that the world does not know you because it didn't know him either. You see, if you look like Christ, then the world won't recognize you because it didn't recognize him. The world, you see, has a different father. It's a a different father, a different family. They don't look like each other. These families don't work the same way. They don't understand the customs that are unique from family to family. You see, these families, they're they're totally unique and distinct. They're they're made up of fundamentally different DNA. If you went back to Ephesians chapter 2, write it down and go back and look at it later. It talks all about who you once were. You were once a son of wrath and a child of disobedience, serving the prince of the power of the air of this age and world. And just to put this in perspective and what this means for us, reimagine with me the story of the prodigal son. I mean, you all know that story. I don't need to retell it, but How would the ending of that story have been different and how ridiculous would it have been if the son who had been nigh unto death because of his poverty, eating the dregs of society, living in sin, no food, no clothing, no provision, no hope. What if that son had come out of that life, come back to the father only to get bored with his new life with the father and go back to the pigsty and his old way of life that was nigh unto death. You see, that is exactly what happens when we return to our old sinful ways. And John's point here in verse 1 is that if you've truly known the love of the Father, then you've been irreversibly changed. And if that is the case, then you must leave your old ways behind because that's not you now. Why would you go back to that old family? You see, so many Christians, they spend their lives trying to figure out how close they can get to the world rather than doing what God expects them to do, which is to figure out how far away they can actually get while on this earth. It's a subtle shift, but it's one that makes all the difference. The question in in your life must not be, how close can I get to the line? Can I do this, but not that? The intention should be, how far from that line can I go? And if that is the line in your life, then it's a principle that begins to govern all the choices that you make and it will make you unrecognizable to the rest of the world. He says here in this verse, the implication of it is that because we're now his children, the world isn't going to know us and if the world does know us, there's a problem. But if you're living as a child of God, then there's going to end up being a distinction in your relationships. There's going to be a distinction in your private thoughts and your public actions and your financial management and your entertainment choices and your self-control and your purity. In all of this, there has to be a distinctness that marks you as one who has been called by God to receive his name. And when unsaved people come into contact with you, do they sense and see something, anything different about you? Or do they recognize you as being one of their own? That's a convicting question. And it's the point of verse 1 
in chapter 3, all of it, our distinctness from the world and our affinity for God, all of it is shaped by the fact that God has bestowed a massively great love on us so that we might be his children and be different from the world that is around us. Verse 1, it's the key to the rest of the passage. You see, the foundation of your spiritual walk is your knowledge of God's love. And when you fully comprehend the magnitude and impact of God's love for you, it shapes everything about your relationship to Him and your relationship to the world around you. And that knowledge then becomes the very foundation for all subsequent spiritual growth, and it becomes the motivating factor in the way you live. That is what we must know so that we can grow in order to show spiritual maturity. We'll look at verse 2 the next time we're together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the impact that it has in our life. It's so very clear. You have left nothing to chance and you've left nothing for us to be confused about. You've drawn us a picture and you have provided us with salvation that has empowered our ability to live in light of what you have commanded us to do. So may we see and perceive the reality of your great love for us and the impact that that love must now have on our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.